take it there. Enjoying the study, my, uh, personally, uh, of, of Nahum, uh, it's been very challenging for me. You know, something that I realized just thinking through it this morning is that God is, is and, and you know, sometimes it's obvious things that we have to be reminded of, uh, but, but God is such an incredible communicator. Uh, you know, he tells us everything that he needs to, and the, for us to, we, if all we had was the first three chapters of the Bible, we would have enough. Uh, but, so he's very detailed with that, and then he goes on for the rest of Genesis and the six, other 65 books of the Bible to tell us the same thing. You know, it, you know that's, that's so contrary to, to, to my thinking of communication, uh, and, and to most men. You know, so contrary. You know, I, I find that I, I walk into the room and tell Arlene, you know, I want to give her some important information. So I give her the statement. I start to walk out and I find out, no, 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 we need a summit. And, you know, it's not to put her down. You know, she, you know, like most women, no, let's, let's, let's talk about this and let's, let's, let's work through all the details and let's come to, the, you know, make sure we're on the same page. And I think that's a strength. Uh, you know, and, and we can go too far with either. But, you know, you know it's, it's just funny to me that, you know, I like to think of God being like me. <laughs> and he keeps telling me he's not. You're the yeah, I'm the problem, yeah. And so last week, in, in, uh, in starting the study, and we, a couple weeks ago with the background, and with that, you know, just reminding ourselves of what Anderson says, that, you know, Nineveh is a city that had repented, with Jonah 150 years earlier. And again, Anderson says this, past blessing does not guarantee present peace. The people of each generation must seek and serve God for themselves. And then last week in starting the study with chapter 1, we, uh, we looked at how, you know, th that God is in control. And specifically there that God speaks. So he communicates. And, you know, I'm so thankful that he does. I'm so thank thankful that he doesn't communicate the way I do, to just give you the bullet point and walk out of the room. But that he gives us the detail, and then he repeats it, and repeats it, repeats it, and repeats it. This week, we're going to continue on with God being in control, but now we're going to look at how God acts. So we've seen how he speaks. Now we will see how he acts. Let's look. Uh, we'll read the, the first, oh, well, just verses 2 and 3. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. And, you know, again, we're fine with God being like that so long as that means he's like that with others. But then we find out, and we'll look at this more next week, at just who the enemy of God is. And it's very uncomfortable. And uh, I found a video on YouTube. It's about 17 minutes long. And it's entitled, The Church of Oprah Exposed. And, you know, I think that's interesting uh, because, you know, Oprah is one of those people in our society that's, that's very influential. You know, she uh, obviously has been of influence in society, uh, and we've seen in recent years her influence in government. 
and you know, it, but we don't we don't realize her influence um, spiritually. And it's really interesting. When she was 20 years old, she was at her Baptist church. The pastor was going through characteristics of God, and she said she was getting lost in the moment and the excitement of all of it until the pastor said that God is a jealous God. And that, that shook her. She didn't like that. And she said that was the moment where she began her journey questioning rules, belief systems, and doctrines. And although she believes that Jesus existed, she says he can't be God, he can't be the one who takes care of all of this. It just is irrational. A jealous God. Verse 2. What does it mean, and I want you to answer this, what does it mean for God to be a jealous God? Okay. He wants no other gods before him. He's, yes? Okay. Anybody else? This, by the way, this is your opportunity to talk. Because <laughs> I'm about to bombard you with loads of information, that, and we're going to be rolling through it. To give you a little bit more information, the reason Oprah says she has a problem with a jealous God is because, wait a minute, he's a loving God. So how can he be jealous? Yes, sir. So what's your point with that? His loving kindness far exceeds his judgment. People have trouble with love me or else. I'm, say that again, I'm sorry. Basically, God is saying love me or else. And we're not comfortable with that, are we? No, we're not. 
Yeah. Because we, we, we want a God that's loving. But then we put stipulations on what loving is. And, you know, and, and in doing so, we're, de- we're denying ourselves you know, that, that intimacy, that depth that God has created us for to know him and all that he is. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't like that uncomfortableness. You know, we want a God that is comfortable for us. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Okay, let, let's, anything else you're just itching to say? Kelly, I don't know if it was you or Charlie that compared it to, like, if Arlene was spending time with another. Well, I hope it was me that was saying <laughs> that, not Charlie. <laughs> it would be tough if it was Charlie. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a loving response for you to be super okay with your wife spending time with another man. Yeah. The exclusivity. Right. Yeah, we put such negative negativity on jealousy and, and we should and we'll talk about that. But from what from what perspective? How is jealous jealousy wrong? How is it right? Okay. Here, jealous in verse 2. I have a, a book in my library that I've mentioned before. I think it's the, the title just, just captivated me, and that's why I bought the book. Uh, along with the author, I, I really appreciate Norman Geisler, but he wrote a book entitled, years ago, he wrote this, Creating God in the Image of Man. And he didn't write that with you know, a, posi- you know, a positive reaction to what was going on in the church or is going on in the church, but that there is a movement that wants to interpret God that way. That you know, God is no different from us, uh, you know, if it's it, it's it's a it's a twisting of what is true. We were created in God's image, not the other way around. So that being so, we must be very careful not to place on God characteristics of our fallen flesh. As we saw last week, God is sovereign, and we are not. He is not like us. Yes. I appreciate how uh, Clive Anderson said it. God is totally different from us. He alone creates, sustains, and controls everything that exists. We must not project onto Him human characteristics unless the Bible gives us the license to do so. So when Nahum wrote that God is jealous and avenges himself, he was speaking of the perfect way that God acts, and he was not describing the rash behavior of humanity. He goes on and lay it out like this. He says, in speaking of God as jealous, Nahum is not saying that God is capricious. He does not have any unreasonable change of mind or character. He is not malicious. He is not spiteful. He is not vicious. He is not cruel. Johnson 
comments from the Bible Knowledge Commentary that God in his jealousness is found in the book of Deuteronomy displaying a zealousness to protect what belongs to him. And there in, in Deuteronomy, specifically that being the nation of Judah. In some more of my research, I found that apparently the root idea of the Old Testament word jealous is to become intensely red. So that's describing or referring to the changing of the color of the face that rises up with that heat of emotion, which is associated with intense zeal. Zeal over something that is dear to us. Both the Old and the New Testament words for jealousy are also translated zeal. So the Bible.org put it like this, Therefore, being jealous and being zealous are essentially the same thing in the Bible. God is zealous. He is eager about protecting what is precious to Him. Like Brooklyn was just saying, if a spouse sees someone else flirting with their husband or their wife, and they don't have a problem with that, then are they really committed to that marriage? Outrage and pain and anguish, that's appropriate in that context. It should be. God is not some far-off, uncaring being that has no connection, desires no connection with his creation. Paul Copen said it like this, We should be amazed that the creator of the universe, think about that, the creator of the universe, would so deeply connect himself to human beings that he would open himself to sorrow and anguish in the face of human rejection and betrayal. It's important for us to understand how the word jealous is used in Scripture. How it's used in Exodus has been read to us already in chapter 20 and verse 5 compared to how it's used in Galatians 5.20, where there it's describing the sin of jealousy. When you and I use the word jealous with regards to sin, we use it to describe our feelings towards someone who has something that we don't have but we want. Whether that be possessions, wealth, looks, ability, a relationship... We find that this is not the case with God's jealousy. Again, as has already been read to us in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So here we see that God displays jealously when what belongs to him is given to another. From God's so so this is a good thing. And from God's jealousy we find that he is avenging. This is just oh man the prophets are weighty, aren't they? But you know we're so prone to go to the you know 
the Lord is my shepherd. And I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, downplay that. But we, we need to see God for all that he is. If we're going to walk with him in that intimacy, in that deep relationship that he has created us for. He is an avenging God. And that word is used three times in verse 2, showing his resolve for what is true of him and what belongs to him. Repetition equals emphasis, so let's think about this some. He is avenging this is always best for those who are His. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35, and most of the scripture that we'll use, the cross-references I'll have on the screen today for time's sake. I don't like doing it that way, but of necessity I think we have to. Here in verse 35 of Deuteronomy 32, we read, Vengeance is mine. And retribution in due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Then in verse 41, If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. And we read that and we go, Yeah, God, do it. Praise you. But he deals with those who stand against him for the sake of justice, including those who belong to him. In Hebrews chapter 10, we looked at this passage last week, so just in review, verses 29 to 32, and talking to believers, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. And within the context, if you remember, he's talking about to the believer who just habitually, voluntarily sins, knows what he's doing and just does it. There's no battle. There's no, there's no care. I'm going to do this. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of God who takes vengeance. His vengeance is for the sake of accomplishing what is right, what is just. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, Moses says. In the context here, Moses is, it's one of those times where Moses has to stand between God and the nation and plead for them. And so he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? 
His vengeance is just. The Bible has um, a great deal to say about revenge. Both in the Hebrew and in the Greek words translated vengeance and revenge and avenge have as their root the meaning of the idea of punishment. This is crucial in understanding why God reserves for himself the right to avenge. Because of our fallen flesh, we cannot. Unlike us, God never takes vengeance from impure motives. His vengeance is for the purpose of punishing those who have offended and rejected Him. The Bible teaches in Leviticus 19, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then again, David, when being persecuted by Saul, when being done wrong by Saul, and Saul wanting to take his life, we find in 1 Samuel 24, 12, when David had right before him the option of ending this problem and bringing about justice, he said this, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Who did? Yeah. Yeah. But David, at this point in his life, just he couldn't do that. Because he understood that vengeance is not for him. This belongs to God. As Christians, we're to follow the Lord's command. To love your enemies. Hmm. And pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5. Isn't that, isn't that encouraging? It's just a warm feeling. But in doing so, we're to leave the vengeance to God. So from God, from God's jealousy, we find that He's avenging. But also in verse 2, we find that he is wrathful. Which literally means he is the Lord and master of fury. Now, th these are not things that you know, we, we meditate on, you know. I, I really appreciate, you know, Bill Bushhouse one time, he and I were out for lunch. Our birthdays are very close together. and So we went out to celebrate our birthdays. and He made a statement that, really grabbed my attention, and it, this was years ago, and I've always remembered it. He says, you know, there's a lot of Christians that are looking forward to Judgment Day so they can see others get theirs. And he says, you know what, Kelly? On that day, I'm convinced I will not be able to watch them get theirs. As we stand before a holy God for all that He is, I don't believe I'll be able to lift my head. Do, do we really want to know God for all that He is? Or only for all that I want Him to be? Yes? Is there a scripture that indicates that we would witness 
I, I don't know offhand that if we're going to witness it, but he's just saying that there are people who think that, yeah. Good question. So we see that from his jealousy we find his wrath. The term is used as a rule to convey the concept of an inner emotional heat. We're starting to see something about God. He is, he is emotional. But his emotions, I don't think his emotions control him. I think he controls his emotions. And he acts with them. I don't believe I can do that. Deuteronomy 9.19 says this, For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. Again, Moses, well, Moses had to do a lot of praying for, for the nation. Here he was coming down from the mountain carrying the Ten Commandments. And there the nation is what? Worshiping a false god. And God is hot. He, his wrath is, is being displayed. Now, the writer of Hebrews, turn with me over there, chapter 12. The writer of the book of Hebrews uses this account. in such a way that we might pay attention to what God has to say through Jesus. So there in chapter 12, and I'll start reading. In verse 25, we'll go to the end of the chapter. It says this, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him, who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we... Believers receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us also let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. So it's an incredible picture that's painted for us as Moses comes down and he sees what's happening and how God dealt with them that day. And he says, okay, now look. Are you, and in the context here of the book of Hebrews, are you paying attention? Are you fixed on Jesus? Are you listening to me? Are you hearing what I have to say in Christ? So we see that through his jealousy, he is, we find his vengeance, we find his wrath, but Oh, good, right? We see in verse 3, he's slow to anger. God's slowness is seen in Scripture with his patience and his compassion and his graciousness. Now, we take this and we run with this. We abuse this. 
And I think we turn it into something that it is not. But how does Scripture lay it out for us? In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. He's talking to Moses here when he's giving him the second set of the Ten Commandments. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. I think about the context here of all that's happened. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And then again in the New Covenant, in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance he is slow to anger. Thank God. Praise Him for this and thank Him for this. But don't abuse this. Because His slowness does not mean that He is condoning of sin. For from God's jealousy we find that the guilty will be punished. Again in verse 3, his justice is without injustice. Now that sounds kind of, well, of course, his justice is without injustice. But that's how we read it. Moses at the end of his life, when Joshua is being commissioned, Moses makes this statement in Deuteronomy. Turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 32. In chapter 32, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. So here we find an appeal to earth and to heaven. So there's basically what's, what's being said here is that what I'm about to say is, a, is of significance for all of creation. So everybody listen. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets of the fresh grass and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Verse 4, he is just and without injustice. The content of that teaching is a proclamation of the Lord in his name. That is a description of his character and works. And so here, within the context, if the Israelite was to give serious consideration to the character and the work of God for who He is and all that He is, there would, then, this would be evidenced in His trust in, his, in Him and who He is as He shows Himself. Then that one could expect to enjoy the blessing of life. But that came from seeing God for who He is and all that He is not just for what I'm comfortable with, 
Jesus will have nothing to do with those who have nothing to do with him in faith. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 7, it's there that, that people will come to Jesus. Jesus tells us this, that there will come a day when people come to him and say, Lord, was it not in your name that we did this and this and this and this? We did these things in your name. And Jesus replies in verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You go back and you look at that and you see what the things are that they're doing. They're really good things, but they're lawless because they're apart from, they're apart from Him. They're done apart from a dependence on Him, a reliance upon Him, and it's got nothing to do with Him. Jesus will have nothing to do with those who have nothing to do with Him by faith. So His slowness to anger does not mean that the Lord is weak. Because it goes on there, back in our, back in our text, it goes on. It says in verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. There it is. And look how, the, back in Nahum, look how the, now the context, he, how it starts to build from this, that he is great in power. Look at the second part of verse 3 where we stopped reading. And just, I mean, this is interesting when you see it within the context. It just talks about he, how he is great in power. And he's slow to anger, but he's great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So here we go. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers of Bashan and Carmel. Whether, uh, uh, wither, they wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Now, uh, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon are fertile areas. And so God tells them, I'll dry them up. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. An incredible you know, description, painting an incredible picture of, of, of his power. Scripture goes on in 2 Corinthians 20 and verse 5 and says this, When Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new, the new court, and he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. The guilty will be punished by his power. We can count on it. And God reveals his great power. You know, we, we always, it just seems so far off, you know, it's God's way out. But God reveals his great power to us in the new covenant without doubt in the presence of Christ. 
Listen to the words from Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read from verses 15 to 20. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm going to start reading. It's Colossians 1, 15. Speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. So he's talking about Jesus. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, through Christ, I say, whether things on earth are things in heaven. Now, we like to see Jesus as being my helper, my friend. But we have a problem seeing him as my God. Chris Thomas once made a statement uh, that I thought was interesting. He asked the question from the pulpit. He says, why is it that Christians are so free and easy to talk about God, but very seldom do you hear them talk about Jesus? And that grabbed my attention because that was an observation that I had made. How many times will hear people get up and give testimony? They'll talk all about God, knowing God and how good God is and what God has done. But they will not talk about Jesus, except for maybe just passing. But they don't talk about him. Maybe say his name, but don't talk about him. And I thought, that's a good question. And then he went on to say this, that he believes it's because when we talk about God, we can make God be whoever we want him to be however we want him to be. But when we start to talk about God, we start to talk about Jesus as being God, all of a sudden God becomes intrusive. And it's either we abide in him, we come under him, we respond to him, we live true to him with total dependence upon him, or we don't. Rob, how did you say it earlier? Or, yeah. And we say, that's not God. No, that's not your God. That's not my God, the one that we have carved out and put in a high place in our life and bow down to. I, Colossians 2.10 just sums it up. Well, just looking at, at his power, look at what Jesus says in John 15.5. And specifically the last part of it. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you know the Bible tells you what you can do? <laughs> you can do nothing. How busy are we in our life every day? How busy are we doing nothing? And so now, Colossians 2.10, one of my, personally, my favorite passages, one that the Lord used greatly in my life. And in Him, in Christ, you have been made complete. And He is the head. Over all rule and authority, God has shown His sovereignty 
to me. He has shown his sovereignty for all that he is to you in Christ. Jesus is much more than just our ticket to heaven. He's much more than somebody that we're supposed to try to be like to appease God. He is God. And apart from him, you can do nothing. He's the head over all rule and authority. Nineveh, look, look back in our, our text here in, in Nahum. Nineveh thinks itself to be great in power over God. Look at the second part of, of, of well, let's just look at verse 9. Well, this statement, we'll talk about when we get to verse 9, but wow, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make it a complete end of it. So go ahead, you start it, I'm going to finish it. Distress will not rise up twice. Look at verse 11. From you has gone forth one who has plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and like, likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict, I will afflict you no longer. So Nineveh thinks itself to be great in power over God, but we see from verses 3 to 8 that we've already read about his power that God shows himself to be what Nineveh believes itself to be. Who do we worship, really? In Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, it says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And then it just continues on in Revelation chapter 7. In verse 9 it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne, and behold, the Lamb clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in his hands. Here we see the Lord. We see our God. In the context, we see that this throne is, th that, that is the throne that God sits on and that Christ is with him there. I think probably a verse that gives some commentary to this would be found in Hebrews 1 verse 3. And he is the radiance, Christ is the radiance of God. His glory, of God's glory. Christ is a radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature. He upholds all things by the word of God's power. And when he had made purification sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right now, Jesus is seated in the place of authority. He is in charge. This is a sobering message that Nahum gives us. Are we listening to this? In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis writes of a conversation that goes, goes on between the beaver, Mr. Beaver, and the children, Peter, Susan, and Lucy. And... In this conversation, Mr. Beaver is explaining to them who Aslan is. Now remember, in the story, Aslan is a depiction of Christ. And the conversation goes like this. Susan asks, who is Aslan? Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan is a lion. 
The lion, the great lion. Susan then says, can we identify with this? Is he quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Is God safe? Is Jesus, whom you put your faith in and claim to abide in, is he safe? In order for us to know him for who he is, we see here that God is avenging and he is wrathful. He's all about destroying what is against him. And so if you and I are going to know God, if we're going to know Jesus for all that he is, then is he not to be about crushing us? Destroying what is not of him. I appreciate Andrew Murray in his book, Humility, who gives us a poem, and it goes like this. How great is God? How small am I? Lost, swaddled up in love's immensity. God only there, not I. Oh, to be emptier, lowlier, mean, unnoticed, and unknown. Really? And to God a vessel holier, filled with Christ and Christ alone. Folks, do you see Jesus or do you see in Jesus all that God is? Or do you just see someone you've made up who is comfortable and safe? Do you see in Jesus God who is jealous? And because of this, he is avenging. Who is wrathful, yet slow to anger. Though by, with his slowness, he is just and displays his power. And will not let the guilty, whether they be his or not his, go unpunished. Of all the teachers that I had going through Bible school and Bible college, the one who had the most impact on me was the one who was the hardest to listen to in class. His influence over me was not because of his ability to articulate. Matter of fact, it was quite painful and it was real work to get through his classes. But he was the one who displayed true humility in his understanding of who God is as revealed through Christ. Therefore, 
he saw who God is in Christ and that it was not found in himself, in his flesh. He was the one that I went to for advice. He's the one that I still look to. And he's the one that God has told me, there I am. He's a man who had to deal and still does have to deal with lots of issues. But with humility, with the understanding that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. He's got this. And because of that, it's easy to mistake him as being weak, but when the time comes to see his strength, I have seen many people put in their place. All of this because he has been convinced that God in Christ is in control. Are you convinced that God in Christ is in control? I told you the beginning was your time to talk. We're out of time. So let's pray. Don, would you lead us?